All right, good afternoon. Great to have everybody back. We have a lot to do this morning. Parshas Bahar. We've been learning over the last couple of months the comments of Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, the great leader of the Jewish community in Germany, turn of the, uh, from the 1800s into the 1900s. And he has a lot to say, a number of fascinating ideas as we learn about Bahar, which has the two primary mitzvahs in the beginning of the Parsha, which we'll discuss, that of Shemitah and of Yovel. Shemitah, of course, which we're in a Shemitah year right now, every seventh year in the land of Israel, the land lays itself fallow or we are required to lay it fallow. No working of the field. Uh, everything that grows on its own is sanctified. It needs to be treated with a special status of Kedusha uh, and that is every seventh year. And then we're going to learn, as we will shortly, you count seven cycles of seven years for a total of 49 years. And then the 50th year is the Jubilee year, the year of the Yovel, in which we, for a second year in a row, have a Shemitah-like year and a number of uh, interesting halachas, primarily amongst them all Avadim, all servants go free and all land is returned back to its ancestral ownership. We'll talk about all of this uh, in a few moments inside, but those are the two concepts that we're going to begin with. Let's learn the comments of Rav Hirsch. Uh, I hope to conclude with what really to me was just a fascinating insight that he had and uh, look forward to sharing this. Let's go. The Torah opens and Hashem spoke to Moshe on Har Sinai saying the following. Rashi makes a very famous comment in the beginning of our parsha here and, and notes what a strange way to open up a parsha that Hashem spoke to Moshe on Har Sinai. Everything that Hashem spoke to Moshe was done on Har Sinai. What's so special about this particular mitzvah of Shemitah? In fact, Rashi's language is Ma inyan Shemitah leitzel Har Sinai. Why is Shemitah given the special status that it was taught on Har Sinai. And Rashi says, it's actually to show you that just like all of the details that we're about to learn about Shemitah and Yovel were taught in their general rules and in their specific details, everything was taught on Har Sinai. So too, everything that we know about from the Torah was taught in its general rules and in its details was taught on so this is really just a indication that whether or not it's specifically said elsewhere, everything really came from Harsinai. Her first points out, and why is that specifically said right here? That is because the very last incident that was discussed at the end of last week's parsha, if you were in Shul, I spoke about this in the Jerusha Shabbos morning, was the sad incident of the Mikalel, a Jew who went out and curses Hashem. The Torah doesn't tell us exactly what the fight was about that led him to do so. That's what we spoke about last week. The bottom line is he does, and the Torah says um, at the end of last week's parsha, they weren't sure what to do with him. They knew that his punishment was, uh, it was a capital punishment. They weren't sure which one. So the Torah actually says they placed him in a holding cell, like in a jail, until Hashem could explain to them exactly what to do. So her first points out, that's why the very next law is stressed. It was taught to Moshe on Har Sinai. That particular law, the people didn't know what to do. Moshe hadn't spent much time teaching them what to do. Who wanted to talk about a situation of a person who curses God, heaven forbid? So it wasn't yet, they didn't know yet. But now that we're going to get into the laws of Shemitah, which are going to be there for, for all of eternity, you need to know that as this is being taught, that was, it was all taught to Moshe on, on Har Sinai, and there was not a detail left out as Moshe comes down. It took, a, it took a while for Moshe to teach everything to the people, but everything was taught to Moshe on Har Sinai. Let's learn about some of the halachas of Shemitah, and then followed by Yovel. Torah says as follows, Pesach Beis, verse 2 in front of you, Dabel b'nei Asher 
translated as, speak to the Jewish people, and you'll say to them, Ki el ha'aretz, when you come to the land that I'm going to give you, ha'aretz, the land will observe a Shabbos la Hashem, a Shabbos to Hashem. Number of important points that first right away picks up on. Number one, Ki el ha'aretz. This has a halacha that only applies when you arrive in the land. Not just when you arrive in the land, but as the Gemara derives, after you are settled, kol i kol echad ve'echad makir es mikomo. Every person has to recognize his own home, meaning he has to have been given an ancestral plot of land. This is your land. That took 14 years. Seven years it took the Jews to conquer the land of what was called Kena'an at the time. Seven years to then settle it. In the 15th year of the Jews from entering the land of, of Eretz Yisrael after their 40 years in the desert, the 15th year was actually now year one of the Shemitah cycle. So that year 21 became a, uh, a Shemitah year because they went through 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and then 21 was the seventh year, and then from then on out, we would count Shemitah cycles. That's what the first thing that it has to be, specifically when you're home. And that applies as, uh, as well on a Torah level, and not until everybody returns home. Big discussion whether or not Shemitah would apply today. Most of the authorities are of the understanding that today it's only rabbinic because we're not all back home yet, but we still observe Shemitah. And as I mentioned, this year indeed is a Shemitah year. Number two, the first points out, how do we define the Shemitah year in which, as we're going to read in the very next Pasuk, we'll do it right now. How do you observe the Shemitah year? So the next Pasuk says, Sheish Shonim Tizra Sadecha, for six years you will plant and sow your field. Six years you will prune your field. You will gather all of your yield, your tvua. But the seventh year, it will be a Shabbos for the land. Shabbos la Hashem. And it will be a Shabbos to Hashem. Your field you will not sow. And your a vineyard you will not prune. Her first points out two things, a couple of things. Let's just go through one at a time. Number one, first of all, you can't help note, of course, that this is the same pattern as our weekday Shabbos. We have six days you will work, and on the seventh day you will relax. That we go through every week. And the Torah uses almost the exact same language when it comes to Shemitah as well. This idea that six years you will work your field and on the seventh year you will let it lay fallow. You will not sow. You will not harvest. It remains as a Shabbos to the land, a Shabbos to Hashem. And we have many, many of these parallels between the way that we observe Shabbos every week and the way that we observe Shemitah uh, every year. Some of the, well, let's, let's do some of the similarities, then we'll do some of the differences. Similarities are, the Torah defines this as a Shabbos la Hashem. That it is a Shabbos, the fact that we're letting the land fallow, is a Shabbos to Hashem. And that is a very important understanding of the nature of Shemitah. One might mistakenly think that the reason why we have Shemitah is because the land needs to rest. The land needs a year off. And that you might say it's good for agriculture, it might be good. A farmer knows you need to rotate your crops, you need to let some of the times let the land lay fallow to regenerate, and that the Torah sort of put into place 
a requirement to allow the land to regenerate. That might be true, meaning that the land gets to regenerate, but that's not why this halacha exists. It's not why we have a mitzvah of Shemitah in that Hashem is speaking to the farmers and telling them, I know what to do, give the, year, give the land a year off. If the farmers will figure it out, they would have figured it out on its own. This is a Shabbos la Hashem. It's a rest to Hashem. And this refers points out in the same way, in the same way that when we observe, observe Shabbos every week, we are making a statement. It's a critical statement, and there might not be another statement that we make as important as we do every single week of, I am not the Creator. I am commanded by the Creator to stop all of my creative works, to stop all activities which would demonstrate I am a Creator, and that's what all 39 of the principal actions that are prohibited on Shabbos are all acts of creativity that display man's dominion over the world. And every seven days we stop and we say, Ribbonu Shalom Hashem, this is your world. It's your world. I am the created one. And I demonstrate that by refraining from my own acts of creativity and testify you're the creator. In the same way, the letting the land lay fallow is a Shabbos la Hashem. It's not just for the benefit of your corn crops the next year, that it, the land should get, get a year off to regenerate. It's to demonstrate the land, which you know, a person has no stronger connection to their land in which they feel like, this is mine. I've made it. I'm on my land. And especially remember, this is an ancestral land that I've been given. It's been in my family for generations. Once every seven years, you don't touch that land. And why don't I touch that land? To give that same testimony that says, I am a tenant here. This is not mine. I've been given control over this land. This is the plot of land that I've been given to live and to work, to be able to, to live off of the produce that it will give me, but it is not mine. And how do I demonstrate that it is not mine? I demonstrate that by taking the, I can't work it. I've been given rules and regulations of what I can and can't do. If I were really the balabas here, if I was really the owner and the man in charge, I make up my rules. I'll decide when to leave it fallow, when to let it regenerate, or anything else that I wanted to decide. I don't have that option. The Torah imposes upon me and says it's a Shabbos la Hashem, not just for the benefit of the land, for the benefit of my statement to Hashem that this is your land. In the same way that Shabbos every week testifies to Hashem as the creator, Shabbos every seven years testifies that Hashem is the owner of our lands. And that, he writes, Refersh, is behind a very interesting law. And that is, on, on Shabbos, when it comes to the 39 principal activities, why do I keep calling them principal malachos, principal activities that are forbidden? Because they are just principles. But each one of the 39 has many, many subcategories. In Hebrew, we refer to the principles as avos, as the fathers, and then all of the subcategories as toldos, as like offspring, things which come from them. So, for example, you're not allowed to sow a seed on, uh, on Shabbos. Anything that has to do with growth is consumed under that prohibition so that I'm not allowed to water either. Even though watering is not one of the 39 principal activities forbidden on Shabbos, but it has the same goal and creates the same activity as planting and uh, uh, plowing. So it's included within it, even though it's not the same exact thing. And there are many such examples of what we call toldos. It's not, it's not this, this isn't mentioned specifically. For example, uh, squeezing. Squeezing an olive or squeezing a grape 
is biblically prohibited. It's not one of the 39 malachas. Not one of the 39. One of the 39 is extracting the seed of grain from its husk. So in the same way as you can't ex- uh, extract the seed from its husk, you also can't extract olive oil from an olive or grape juice from a grape. But squeezing isn't a malacha, it's, it's a different malacha of taking out a seed. That's not called squeezing, but it's a tolda of that and it's just as prohibited. Almost every, 30, every one of the 39 that we have has subcategories that are derived from them. Shemitah doesn't have that. The laws of Shemitah doesn't have that. The laws of Shemitah has the four items that are listed explicitly in the Psukim that we just read. Uh, Zriya and Zmira, pruning and sowing your field. Uh, and the two that we had uh, earlier, Ktsira and Bitsira, harvesting grapes and your untrimmed vines. They're really the same malachas, one by a vine and one by a field. Those are the only activities that are biblically forbidden. We don't have a concept of, well, if this accomplishes the same goal or ideal, it should also be forbidden. No. When it comes to Shemitah, what's listed is listed, and beyond that, nothing else. You don't have such a similar concept. Why not? So it first says it all comes down to this idea of what is it that we're testifying to. When it comes to Shabbos, he says very beautifully, we're testifying that Hashem is the creator and not me. That means if there was any creative activity that I do on Shabbos, that shows that I'm also a creator. So it's not just that you could limit me to some things and then let me do some things. If you let me do anything, if you let me do anything, then I have become and shown that I'm also a creator. And therefore we have the idea, here are 39 principal acts, but all of the things that fall under this, any demonstration of your, your own owners, we don't allow. It becomes forbidden. But on Shemitah, I'm just trying to show that Hashem owns the land. As long as I can't do the major things, and I'm limited in that, then I'm not, I'm not the balabas around here. I'm not the owner. I'm not in charge. Even if I came up with something that I am allowed to do, oh, look, I could do this. doesn't matter. All the big things like harvesting and sowing and trimming, the things that are listed I can't do, I'm clearly not in charge here. Because if I were in charge, I would be able to do these things. And therefore, on Shabbos, we have to find every and any display of creativity and say, no, 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 no not today. You're not the creator. You can't do it. It's a total Shabbos in order to show Hashem as the creator. On Shemitah, I just need to show that Hashem's in control of the land. Not doing the four things that are listed shows that very clearly that I'm not in charge of my land. I have to refrain from all of these things, and therefore we don't expand it anything beyond that. It's not required to hold back from. Okay, let's move forward. Therefore, everything, this will be again a Shabbos of the land for you to eat and for your servants and for your female servants, your laborers, everyone who lives with you, everyone can eat. And for your animals and the wild animals in your land, everything is to be eaten. Very important. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding that people think that uh, food that grows during a Shemitah year, again, like the year we're in right now, you're not allowed to eat. No, no, heaven forbid. Torah says very clearly you can eat. You just can't work the field and you can't gather to then sell it. It is ownerless. As the Pesach just says, as we read, it belongs to you, your children, your, your servants, your maidservants, your animals, to those who dwell amongst you. It, it's not yours. The land is mine, Hashem says, and therefore things that grow on their own are completely ownerless. Everyone is allowed to come and take what they need from anyone else's fields. 
So it's not that it's not allowed. You just can't work the field, but you certainly are allowed to pick fruit. Now, again, if you have a grain, grain is what you grow, like wheat or corn. So that's going to grow very little if you don't plant. So you'll get a few things that will grow on their own from last year's harvest and things that fall on the ground. For sure, you'll get some, but not a lot. But if you have an orchard, apples, oranges, grapes, um, all of those things that are grow from year to year, they will grow in, in abundance during Shemitah year. Uh, they don't grow as well because they're not being tended to um, and they're not being uh, fertilized and they're not being pruned. So nothing grows as well if you don't do that. That's what a farmer does. But you certainly, if I have an apple orchard, I'm going to have hundreds, if not thousands of apples that are going to grow on their own during Shemitah. Those are ownerless. They are ownerless and anyone can come and take them. And it's a different discussion after this morning. So like in practice, in, uh, in practice like what happens? Who harvests that? Who, who brings them to the market to be able to, how, do I, how does anybody eat? So that's a whole separate discussion. But that's the, the rule is, the halacha is, it's completely ownerless and anyone can come and take it. Now, moving on. The Torah then introduces the next phase. And that is, V'sofar tolucha sheva shabbaso shanim, sheva shanim, sheva panim. Now you're going to count seven weeks of these cycles, seven times, that's going to give you a total of 49 years. And so that after you go through the Shemitah cycle and you count off your six years that you work in the seventh year of Shemitah, you do that seven times and that will net 49 years and that will create, as we'll get to in a moment, a Yovel year. Now this is, of course, very similar to what we're in the middle of right now, which is Sfiras HaOmer, the counting of the Omer, where we do the same thing in weeks, not in years. In after, on the, from the second day of Pesach, when we bring the Korban HaOmer, we begin a count, and we count seven weeks, seven weeks of seven uh, days, to get to 49 full days, and then the next day, day 50, is the Yantiv of Shavuos. We're in the 32nd day today. Tonight, Mirz Hashem, tomorrow will be Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. Two and a half weeks from now, we get to uh, Shavuos. We have a similar idea, which we count Shemitah years. There is one major distinction, as our first points out, the Gemara points out. The Pasuk we just read is in singular, V'safar Talacha, you shall count singular the years of Shemitah, seven cycles of seven, and as opposed to the midst of the Korban HaOmer, which we're in the midst of right now, that is that the language is a plural language, U'safar Temlachem, and the Torah tells us to count Sviras HaOmer, each and every person has to count, which is what we do. Every Jew counts every night, the 49 days between Pesach and Shavuos. It's a mitzvah incumbent upon everyone, but the mitzvah of counting Shemitah years is only on the Beisdin, the Sanhedrin. They're the only ones who actually do this count to get us to the 49 years. Now, let's go over a number of halachas of what happens during Yovel, uh, and then we'll get to the comment of Refresh. Number nine. You will blow a shofar on the, in the seventh month, which is the month of Tishrei. The beginning of our year is Tishrei. Of course, on the first day of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah. And, but which day do we blow the shofar on that 50th year following our count of seven cycles of seven? Be'esor l'chodesh, on the 10th of the month. 10th of the month of Tishrei. Hey, we know what that day is. The Torah tells us, Biyom HaKippurim. Of course, the 10th of the month of Tishrei is Yom Kippur. Ta'aviru shofar b'chol artzachem. You will blow a shofar. Oh, so now we have a new mitzvah. We don't do this, of course, because we don't have Yovel. Yovel only will exist in the times of the Sanhedrin, when the Jews return back to the land of Israel, and the Sanhedrin counts for us. So we don't have a Yovel. But what will be... On the Yovel year is, we're familiar with blowing shofar on Rosh Hashanah. 
The only show for we blow today on Yom Kippur is really just a custom. At the very end of Yom Kippur, we blow the shofar to signify that Yantav is over. But that's not a mitzvah. That's not a requirement. That's just, that's our announcement that Yantav is over, Lashana Abba Yerushalayim. In the year of Yovel, when Yovel begins the 50th year on Rosh Hashanah, 10 days later, there's a mitzvah to blow shofar. And we'll blow shofar on Yom Kippur the same way we blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah, a tkiah, a truah, and then another tkiah. And we will daven, the same Musaf we daven on Rosh Hashanah, we'll daven on Yom Kippur, that special year of Yovel. And that's the way the process, that's the mitzvah of Yovel, is to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur. What happens when we blow the shofar on Yom Kippur? You will sanctify this 50th year. And you will proclaim Doror. Freedom, or they translated here in front of you as a release throughout all the land for all of its inhabitants. Those who've been to Philadelphia and have gone to visit the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia will know that this Pusik is inscribed on the Liberty Bell and proclaim freedom for throughout the land. The early um, f- founding fathers in America were very religious uh, Christians. Um, and they, Protestants to be more specific, and they inscribe this verse on the Liberty Bell. Now we blow a shofar, they put it on a bell, that you will proclaim freedom throughout all of the land. Yovel hi tihiyelachem, it will be a yovel, a jubilee for you. Vishavtem ish elachuza. So, and then two things happen, as I mentioned in the very beginning. Number one, each person will return to his land. Ve'ish el mishpachto tashuvu, and each person will return to his family. What does that refer to? Those are the two mitzvahs that we mentioned earlier. Number one, there is such a thing as an Eved Ivri. An Eved Ivri is a Jewish slave, a Jewish servant who fell on hard times. He couldn't make, a, couldn't make any money, so he needed to eat. So he would sell himself as a slave to work for a particular family. He works for six years and then he goes free. If at the end of the six years he decides, I like it here. I don't want to go home. I like my master. This is good for me. So we take his ear, we put it up against the doorpost. He gets his ear pierced and then he becomes an Eved Olam. A servant forever. Now, forever doesn't mean forever. Forever means until Yovel. When the Yovel comes and the shofar blows, then an Evid Ivri, even a Jewish servant who had had it served already his six years, and then already had his ear pierced because he wanted to stay even longer, after that shofar blows, everybody goes home. You're not allowed to stay. You're a free man. What's the second thing that happens? Ish el achuza. So each person returns to his ancestral heritage, his land. Let's say he sold his land over the 50 years. He wanted to make some money. He wanted to go into business. He wanted to do whatever. He didn't know how to farm. So he sold his farmland. When you sell land in Israel, this is an amazing law. Because of this halacha, you never sold property for more than 50 years. Because it goes back at the end of the Yovel. When that shofar blows in Yovel, on Yom Kippur, all land is returned back to its original ancestral Heritage. So what was divided up and given to each family as they entered into the land of Israel, you could sell it all you want, but you're only selling it for 50 years. So the prices will always reflect that. If you're selling it in the first year of Shemitah, the, the buyer gets a full 49 years to make use of it. If you're selling it 10 years later, the buyer has 39 years to make use of it. 10 years after that, the buyer knows he's only got 29 years to make use of it. Obviously, the price will adjust based on how long, but you're not selling ownership of the land. I mean, you are, but it's a temporary ownership because at the end of the Yovel, when the Yovel comes, it's going to return back to its owner. Both of those things happen 
when the shofar blasts on Yom Kippur of Yovel. And then the third halacha of Yovel, Yovel, he pasuk yud aleph on the bottom of your page, shnasach hamishim shenotzi alachem, this should be a Yovel for this 50th year, lo tizra'u velo tiktzeru es fichaha. The same things that are not permitted. You can't sow, you can't reap, you can't harvest. Those things are, basically it's another Shemitah year. So it's two consecutive Shemitah years. Um, you can eat, but um, you cannot work the field. And the Psukim asks elsewhere, and if you ask yourself, how am I going to survive? Not just I can't work the year, the land for one year, but then a second consecutive year I can't work the land. How is that going to work? How do I live? So Hashem promises. You'll see. You'll observe Shemitah. You'll observe Yovel. I'm going to bestow my blessings upon you that you'll be able to harvest enough from the years before and the years after. And this is going to be my guarantee. You're observing these laws to demonstrate that I'm the owner of the land. I'll make sure that you'll be able to survive in the land that I am indeed the owner of. And this is what's required of us during the years of Yovel. Rav Hirsch writes as follows. That's, that's the concept of the Yovel. The word ukrasem duror. You will proclaim this idea of freedom. So he discusses this concept, this word of duror, of to be free. And he discusses what exactly is it. We find that word in a couple of different places in Tanakh. And his understanding, uh, without going through all of his specific examples, is that what it, it refers to the idea, and this is his quote, to follow a natural trend, to return to the original place, the original position. Over time, almost all things um, adjust, they change, they shift. That's, that's life. All living things are moving organisms. They, they adapt to things. And if you go away for a year, you come back, things are different. Of course, if, as long as we're alive, things will be different. That's the natural state. Drur is a return back to a natural state that something um, was in. It's just a natural flow of to be in the way that it really belongs. And that's really what's happening. It's specifically on Yom Kippur, he writes, that we do this. Yom Kippur is the day in which we as a people, as individuals, refresh our moral being. It's a day that starts on Rosh Hashanah, gives us 10 days of preparation, and on Yom Kippur, the day of Kapara, of atonement, of forgiveness, it's like wiping the slate clean, and that each and every individual Jew can say, I'm able to start again. You know, over this past year, maybe I lost my bearings a little bit. Maybe morally speaking, ethically speaking, I'm not where I want to be. I have a gift. I have a gift of a day in which I'm cleansed, I'm pure, I'm cleared of everything that has happened. And on Yom Kippur, I could start fresh. I could be who I want to be. And everything that happened in the past is removed from me. That's all the language, if you remember, from our machzor. Cleanse us. Purify us. Let me start fresh. So on that day of Yom Kippur, we blow the shofar on Yovel. And on a national level, in the same way that Yom Kippur does it for each one of us as individuals, Yovel is going to do this for us as a nation. As a nation, too, sometimes we lose our bearings. Sometimes we lose who we really want to be and what happens. And Yovel gives us a chance to start again. And here's where his amazing comment comes in. I'm gonna, I'll share it as it is. You'll let me know how, how, you know, how, it, how it rings. Because it's really, he's writing again in the late 1800s. Let me, let me introduce it uh, as follows. We live in an era where the primary 
uh, financial or economic, I would say, the economic war that has gone on over the last hundred or so years has been between socialism and capitalism. This is the, the big, you know, you think about the Cold War, you think about the Russian Revolution in the early 1900s, you think about in, uh, in our own beloved Israel and the socialist movement. Again, socialism and capitalism. You know, what communism really is the evil manifestation of socialism. Let's keep it between socialism and, and uh, capitalism. So socialism, uh, without getting into all the details of that, as you are familiar, is the basic idea that everyone is the same. Everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's working towards the same goal. Everybody will share what it is that they have. There should not be mass differenti- differentiations between wealth of this one and that one, whether you're a doctor, whether or not you work in the nursery, whether or not you help clean up the garbage or you farm, everybody's going to get the same, what they need, whatever it is. Capitalism, of course, is the exact opposite in which uh, free society, free trade, you want to be creative, you want to work hard, get ahead. Will it create a tremendous imbalance of wealth? 100% it will, but uh, welcome to the world. That's how it goes. This is what pushes things forward. What gets a person out of bed in the morning to work, to create, to invent, to, to be a scientist, to want to get ahead in new business models? They want money. And it's not going to come to them, whatever it is they do. And so it moves society forward. We could debate from here till tomorrow. Again, we're leaving communism out. Let's just talk socialism versus capitalism. We could talk about many advantages and disadvantages. With the Israeli early settlers tried to create a socialist society with the kibbutz, which obviously over time has not. It might have been a noble idea. Didn't completely work. Here in Canada, we have socialized medicine so that we take an element of that and say we're going to be in a capitalist world but medicine will do in a socialized system in which lots of people are going to pay lots of taxes and we should be able to provide for everybody the same in practice does it work is are people getting the medical care they need we're not talking about that that what the the theory behind the concept was to borrow a concept of socialism within a capitalist world to see if we could take the advantages of both. But in general, the system, it's either this way or that way. Which way are you going with it? Like in the States, of course, it's a purely capitalist system. There's almost no socialist element, um, not in the medicine world or in anywhere else. Um, uh, I say that pretty strongly. It could be there are things that I'm not aware of, but in like a place like Canada, you have a little bit in dabbling in terms of medicine. Uh, and then in Israel, you have the kibbutz, was a fault. but those are the two different world views. Rav Hirsch, now without using the words capitalism or socialism, and he was writing in the late 1800s, Rav Hirsch sees in Yeovil a institution that the Torah gives us to balance these two competing ideals of the drive and the benefit of a capitalist society that moves things forward and the benefit of a socialist society that says we, we're really all the same. We really should be equal. Those two ideas, they're almost impossible to coexist at the same time, but they have benefits. There are positive ways of looking at both those. It should be that people are the same. Like, why should it be such a division of wealth? It should be that people are on equal footing. And yet it should be that there's something that drives me out of bed in the morning that I'm not just going to get the same as the guy next to me. It's hard to balance that. Listen to what Refer says. This is unbelievable. Every 50 years, Refer says, there is a total reset in society. Just like, again, for the individual, Yom Kippur is a reset for my moral bearings, for my ethical bearings. It gives me a wiping the slate clean so that I could feel clean and fresh and pure and begin. Yovel is going to be a national reset 
on a societal level for the entirety of the Jewish people. And why do we need a national reset? I'm going to read a line from him directly. Because there's such a thing that society will lose its bearings in a social economic method. Quote, he says as follows, All the wrongs and the whole diversity of different classes... There are wrongs in having different classes and having the wealthy and the not so wealthy. There is tremendous diversity in terms of power. And all of the resulting contrasts when you have those classes of wealth, the contrast of opulence on the one side and wretchedness on another, of independence on one side and dependence on another, which the unequal distribution of wealth brings, by definition, brings into the internal social life of the nation. When there is a, not an unfair, an unequal balance of wealth, it will create different classes. There's no way around that. There will be the wealthy, the middle class, and the wretched, the poor, those who have nothing. It's a fact. That brings in a terrible internal uh, contrast and precarious situation into the social fabric of society when we have that. Therefore, that brings into the political relation of the reality of the state, Yovel will wipe out and stand clear. The nation is again to be established by the grace of Hashem, socially healthy and politically free, as it was on the first day that it entered into this land. Fresh, externally free, internally free, independent, until it reaches the goal of a national life in which it will shine forth to all of the nations. This, my friends, is an unbelievable idea, if I'm understanding him correctly, in which, without using the word socialism and capitalism, he's describing there's a certain balance. The Torah is a capitalist society. There's a concept of buying and selling and and everything that goes along with it. But it also creates certain ills in a society when you have such a strong imbalance of wealth. It creates caste systems, social systems, and they're not healthy, but it's a reality. But it is healthy to have a capitalist society. So the Torah gave us this balance. Every 50 years, there's a reset. Every 50 years, those who were so poor, they couldn't afford, they go home, they go free. Everyone returns to their land that they had, that their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, everything goes back. You sold it, you did this, you bought. It's a clear reset with the ability for all of these people to like, I wish I could just start again. It will happen. Every 50 years, there's like a re- Now, it's not a perfect reset. Obviously, people have money in their bankers. They don't, they don't lose that money. But society has an internal reset in which everything goes back to the way that it was to correct a little bit, however much it can. Again, never having lived through a Yovel, I can't tell you in experience how much it actually, what, what happens. But in theory, there's this balance of work as hard as you want, earn as much as you can. And then every 50 years, there's a certain reset. Land goes back. Slaves go free. No working of the land for two consecutive years. It's a, a, a evening of leveling of the playing field to some degree. And then we do the cycle again. So that it's not everybody's always going to get the exact same amount. It's not that it's an eternal system as Europe was for most of European history. If you were born into a lower class, you will never get out. You will never own land. You will ne- 
it's everything returns back to the way that it was, and 50 years, and then again, and 50 years, and then again. And in doing so is to give us, as on a national level, this freedom to be politically free, socially healthy, and established in a land that we recognize. It's not mine, it belongs to Hashem. In the same way that I observe Shabbos to say that he's the creator and I'm the created, every, 50, every seven years and every 50 years, to in this reset, I am not the owner of my land. I am simply a tenant here. And everything that I do, that I earn, that I work, is really Hashem's. And in that way, we as a society can function as healthily, as freely, as evenly as is possible within a system that allows for buying and selling and commerce throughout the rest of the 50 years and all that goes along with it. Fascinating thoughts from uh, Rav Hirsch. Wishing everyone an awesome day as always and pleasure spending some time uh, learning together.